stand to our feet. We are going to get into the Word today. And we're in Ephesians 4, chapters, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. We're going to read the New King James, so I'll set the pace, so please read after me. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Let's pray over our spiritual meal. Father, we thank you for the word of God that it is blessed and filled with the nutrients that we need. We're going to receive it by faith, be nourished by it this morning. Holy Spirit, we, we trust that your ministry of opening eyes, ears, and heart and causing people to see here and understand is in operation this morning. So Father, I thank you that you're speaking to your children. They're going to walk away with something out of this message specifically for them uh, to encourage them, but also to use to bless them. And we thank you. Only you can do this miracle. I believe it's happening right now in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. All right, high five someone on the way down. Let's go to verse 1 and start unpacking this, unpacking our meal. Ephesians 4, verse 1 again says, I therefore, say therefore, therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Again, when you see the word therefore, what should you ask yourself? What is it therefore? No one just starts walking up to you and say it starts out therefore. Because it always says there's something coming before that. And so what did Paul just said that he's building on? Well, first of all, he just finished talking about the love of God. Had a prayer for the love of God. To be filled with the love of God that passes understanding and connects power to a revelation of love. The more you receive the love of God, the more you'll have the power of God operating in your life. And he talks about that God's power is exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think according to the power of that works through us. And so he talks about love connected with power. But so Paul's talking about that. And so let's also talk about that this is the second half of the letter. We're moving into the second half of it. And so there's six chapters, three chapters on grace. What's grace? What's God's done for us in Christ Jesus based on unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it, didn't earn it. It was done before you were ever on the scene. So you couldn't help with it because Jesus died 2,000 years ago, provided that salvation, and the minute you got saved, everything that God has provided has been deposited into your account, deposited into your born-again spirit, and so you start out blessed. The book of Ephesians starts out this way. Paul basically says, hi, I'm Paul, you're blessed. He says, you're blessed with all spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has the audacity. He doesn't even know who's being who's talked to there. I mean, yes, there's those in, Ephes in Ephesus, but that letter is going to be written to untold generations. And so how could Paul have the audacity to tell anybody listening to that that they were already blessed? Because guess what? The blessing comes by grace, and grace is for everyone. And so if you've accepted Jesus, you have all the blessings. And guess what? It starts out that way before anything's ever said for you to do. 
God starts out you being blessed. You're born again blessed. And so that's the resources that you're to use to live out the Christian walk. So God starts out every letter he wrote, Paul wrote, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every letter, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. Grace is the unmerited favor of God, but it's also the power of God to do what you couldn't do. And so when Paul starts out a letter, grace to you, that's the resource to live everything after that verse in the entire book. And so we have the grace as a resource to live from. And so he spent three chapters delineating everything grace has provided, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that we're chosen, that we are pure, that we're sanctified in our spirit, and we're forgiven, and we're made holy, and all that's put in there. But now he wants you to do something with it. Put it in your life. Theology needs to go from here to here down to your shoe leather. Theology needs to have shoe leather to it. And so the first half of the letter describes the richness of the grace of God that's been given to us. Grace is the ability and resource to live the Christian walk. And so the first three chapters give the roots of grace to draw from. Every plant, every tree lives from the roots, drawing up nutrients. Well, the same thing with us. We're to live from the roots of grace planted in our boarding in spirit, and we're to bear the fruits of grace. And so the first three chapters is the roots of grace. The last three chapters are describing the fruits of grace that should come from our born-again experience. The first three chapters reveal what's been done for us as a result of justification. That's being born again, being put in a right position with God. Those are the first three chapters, but the last three chapters appeal to sanctification. That's affecting your life outwardly, coming in line with what was done in the new birth to live that out. And so Paul brings this out. And so what am I really saying? I'm saying that the ball of grace has been thrown in your court. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the ball of grace? Are you going to take it home, put it in a closet, and fall asleep on your couch and do nothing with it? But no, you're not called to do that. You're called to, to score points for the kingdom of God. Amen. I made that up myself. You can probably tell. Holy Spirit didn't even help me. I, let's go. Okay, I want you to, so I'm going to make a statement, then I want you to repeat it after me because I think it's important. So let me say it first. Belief always precedes behavior. Say belief always precedes behavior. Let me say this. Doctrine precedes duty. Say, doctrine precedes duty. Calling precedes conduct. Calling precedes conduct. Position precedes practice. Position precedes practice. Revelation precedes responsibility. Revelation precedes responsibility. Grace and faith. So what's our response to what God's done by grace? It's called faith. Faith is the proper response to what grace has done. And so grace is delineated in the first three chapters, but your response of faith is in the last three chapters. It's not what you do by your willpower, but by faith in the grace of God. So God never calls you to do anything. He didn't put a resource within you to draw from. And so you have that. And by the way, the greatest resource you have is the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The, the dynamo that created the universe lives in you. Cre universe creating power lives in you. Tell someone the same power that created the universe is in you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Praise God. 
And so look at 1 Peter 4.10. I heard a minister once say, because of what Jesus has done for us, there's no more responsibility left for the Christian. Well, I can understand if he's speaking vertically, that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation, to, to earn a right standing with God. That was something Jesus did for us at the cross. But even vertically, we still have a responsibility. Faith. Let me tell you what Christian responsibility is. What is Christian responsibility? It's our response to his ability. Response, ability. And so we respond. So what's our response to God's grace? Faith. So you do have a responsibility vertically. It's called faith. It's not just all by grace. If it was all by grace, then we'd all be equal. Equally healed, equally delivered, equally prosperous if it was just God's grace. No, you have to receive grace by faith. And we're all different levels of revelation of the grace of God and appropriating it at different levels. And so it's not just by grace. And so we, but let's talk about, there's a vertical side to our walk before the Lord, but there's also a horizontal side. Do you know when you got born again, you didn't get a private rapture? Why? If the whole reason for you in your Christian walk was to get born again to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, if that was the end result, he would have given you a private rapture, got you out of here, but he left you here. Why are you left here? It's called the Great Commission. It's not the Great Suggestion. We talked about that we are, lived it, we, were, we are left in working a job, we have a family, we have people around us, and we're to share what we have with them on the outside because you're the only Jesus people are going to see. And so it's so important that they see that out of our lives. And so the last chapter is people seeing what's on the inside of you already in your spirit. God can see your spirit, but the world can't see your spirit. I know your spirit's precious. But the world can't see your precious spirit unless it's manifested in what you say, what you do, your attitudes. Then they can see that. And that's called the fruit of grace or the fruit of the spirit. So Paul goes on and he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Notice he didn't say the prisoner of Rome. This is the second time that we're going to find in this book that Paul calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. And so this brings out the fact that he could have been ashamed that I'm in prison. I'm a prisoner. I have chains. I can feel that shame and shackling. But realize, no, no, no. I'm here because I'm in the will of God. God called me to be who I'm. Called me to preach the gospel. And I'm right here in the will of God. And so I'm going to bring the Lord into my situation. And it will elevate whatever situation you're in. Connect the Lord to it. And he says, I'm going to connect the Lord to it. I'm not the prisoner of Rome. I'm the prisoner of the Lord. And so let me bring this out, that the irons on Paul's wrists had not gotten into his soul. Let me say that again. The irons on Paul's wrists had not gotten into his soul. I have a question for you today. Have, has the circumstance uh, you're going through right now, has that gotten into your soul? Has it gotten into your soul? Or is the Lord... The, the supreme master of what's going on in your soul. And so, again, if you bring the Lord in you, I don't care what problem you're having in your marriage, at work, or whatever, it seems like, you know what, no one appreciates me at work, no one sees it, the Lord sees it. And you're the secretary of the Lord. You're the nurse of the Lord. I started out as a janitor, working as a janitor, and I was ashamed of it. Go open my heart. And I was ashamed. People would ask, what do you do? I'm a janitor. 
You're a what? I'm a janitor. I'm a janitor. And one day the Lord showed me, no, you're my janitor. I called you into that. You're the janitor of the Lord. I started telling people, I'm the janitor of the Lord. It elevates whatever situation you're in. Paul didn't let the irons or situation take, take paramount in his soul. The Lord took paramount of his soul. And so he said, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. And so he let that dominate him. He says, now goes on, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Look at the word beseech. It comes from a Greek word, parakaleo, which means to encourage. It means to beseech. It's not a word of forcing or coercing. It's a word of pleading or beseeching. And so let me say something. Grace will always beckon and beseech. The law warns and demands, but grace beseeches. Raise your hand if you're called to leadership in the body of Christ. Raise your hand. I'm going to help you with a leadership secret. As a leader in the, in the dispensation or the covenant of grace, your main job is to beseech, to beseech others based on who they are, calling them up to who they are. And instead of warning and pushing and coerting and manipulating and forcing people to do what you're wanting them to do, that is, that is not the covenant of grace. We're to beseech them and appeal to their what God's already done to them, and they will rise to that. Let me bring out another leadership situation to you, or leadership principle to you. There are two types of people. They are thumbtacks and nails. <laughs> and so for a thumbtack, you just need a gentle pressure to get the job done. A nail, you have to use a hammer. And so most people are like thumbtacks. A little beseeching will do. You start out with beseeching, most people will apply to that. But there's some people that are called knucklers. Knuckleheads. They, they're, they're knuckleheads. And, and you might, then you have to go on and use a hammer, but they're very few. Don't try to use a hammer on a thumbtack. You will damage it. And so, again, start with the beseeching ministry of the Holy Spirit. It works much better. So look, at it says, beseech you. I beseech you to walk worthy. Here in this verse, we have the first Greek imperative. A Greek imperative is a direction to do something an action in the Greek. And so it's the first time that we see it. Actually, Ephesians has 40 imperatives to it in the book. And every one of the 40 imperatives are in chapters 4 through 6. Not a single's found in the first three chapters because the first three chapters is what God did for you. Now, what are you going to do based on what he did? And so 40 imperatives will come to us as our response to his ability, our responsibility as a Christian. First of all, he talks about walk. Walk a life worthy of your calling. Look at the word walk. This speaks of the walk of faith. Whatever you're called to do in the new covenant, it's to do it by faith. If you're to walk, walk by faith. So grace takes our cooperation and action of faith. As we step out on grace, we'll find that we can walk supernaturally. For instance, Peter it says Peter walked on the water, but you know before he ever walked on water, he walked on something else, the grace of God. Jesus said, come. That was a word of grace, a word of empowerment. And he stepped out on the word come and then walked on the water. If any of the other boys in the boat said, well, I want to prove how much faith I have and stepped out, they would have sunk like a boat anchor. They didn't have the word come. And so we have what's called the word of God. That's the word of his grace 
that we can step out on and that can walk a supernatural faith walk. You can walk on water. You can walk a supernatural walk and people look at you. How in the world are you doing what you're doing? It's by the grace of God that I'm walking through what I'm walking right now. When other people would sink, I'm walking above the problem. I heard someone say, I said, how are you? And they said, well, under the circumstances. Well, what are you doing under there? You need to walk above your circumstances called the walk of faith. Walk worthy. Look at the word worthy. It means equal weight to it, equivalent to. It's a picture of scales that have been balanced out, one side equal to the other. And Paul says your walk should be equal to the calling of a Christian of who you are. Your do should equal your who. Your outward life should equate to who you are on the inside. And so Paul talks about that. That's the goal of the Christian walk. We will never fully get there, guys, but that's our goal is to fully manifest what's in our spirit outwardly, and we're not there yet. I can prove it to you. When's the, last, when's the last time all day long people came up and fell at their knees and said, Jesus, oh, sorry, Mary, Tom. No, if, we're not, if people are not saying you're just like Jesus, we have room to improve. Tell someone you have room to improve. Now tell someone else, you really have room to improve. Margaret, I didn't come to church to be insulted. Well, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your neighbor. We're like this. Paul's ambition was to fully experience on the outside what God put on the inside. Look at a very interesting verse in Philippians 3. Look at verse 11. Philippians 3. Look at verse 11. It says, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, well, pastor, I thought that just goes with being a Christian, that we're all going to have a resurrection, and we are. Every one of us are going to have a resurrection body one day when Jesus comes back. Tell someone this is not as good as it gets. <laughs> now, this is good. It's not as good as it's going to get. And so what is this saying? Well, the normal Greek word for resurrection is the Greek word anastasis, anastasis. But this is not this Greek word. He uses a Greek word that's only found in this verse, not found anywhere in the New Testament. He's not talking about the general resurrection at the end of the day. He's talking about a resurrection we can experience right now because the Greek used here is ek anastasis. Ek means out. He says, literally, I want to attain to the out resurrection. What is he talking about, the out-resurrection? He says, I want to live in such a way, being operating in faith so much that what's on the inside is fully displayed on the outside. The resurrection life on the inside is fully manifested on the outside. That's my goal of the Christian walk. That's what I want to attain by any means. I want to get there. Haven't arrived, haven't got there, but I've left. And that's the goal of the Christian walk. It's what's on the inside to come to the outside. Our goal is to have equal possession of the Christian virtues in our outward life as we have them in our inward spirit. That's the goal. And Paul says, walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. Well, guys, you can't walk worthy of a calling. You don't understand what your calling entails. What is your calling? You must first understand your who before you can do. Say, I'm going to understand my who before I can do. Well, your who's your calling? Who has he called you to be? 
Well, first of all, he's called you to be a son of God. Ladies, I know you have trouble with that. But being a son of God is not a gender. It's a position. And we are called the sons of God. All believers are called the sons of God. And you can be a son if I can be a bride of Christ. So our calling is to be a son, and that's what we are. We're the spinning image of Jesus in our spirit. But guess what? People can't see your precious spirit. God can see your precious spirit, but people cannot. The only way they can see who you are on the inside is through your actions, through your words, through your attitudes, how you treat them. That's how they're going to see what's inside your spirit. And so the world's waiting for you to manifest your sonship. Look in Romans 8, look at verse 19. Romans 8, look at verse 19. This is speaking in context of the last day, at the resurrection, but the principle is applies today. What is the world waiting for? Look at Romans 8, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation. Or you could say the world eagerly awaits the revealing of the Son's of God. And so one day the world is waiting for our resurrection and for everything to change. But right now, what is the world waiting for? They're waiting for the revelation of the sons of God because the world out there is hungry for Jesus. And they want to see Jesus in you. And you think, well, a person at work, they may act like they don't want anything to do with what I am, but they really do. They really want to know what truth is. They want to know what power is, what peace is, what love is. They really want it. And so they're looking for you to manifest them. And so the world can only see Jesus if they see them, see him in you. An illiterate man was given a track by a Christian. The man said, I can't read your track, so I'll just watch your tracks. Your lifestyle preaches a whole lot louder than your mouth does. Yes, preach with your mouth. We need to share the gospel. Praise God, we'll teach you how to do that. But your life preaches louder than your words preach. And you're to preach it. And matter of fact, uh, Paul's going to bring out in this chapter, the first thing you're called to do is walk in unity. Walk in unity with people around you. And that's the greatest witnessing tool you have, is your walk. When you walk in unity, it's a witnessing tool. Jesus said so. Look in John 17. Look at John 17, 23. How will the world know that Jesus was sent? John 17, look at verse 23. Jesus says this, I in them and you in me, that they, the world, may be, I mean, sorry, you, that they, believers, may be perfect in one, in unity, that the world may know that you have sent me. That's the message. Of the, that's how we, that's witnessing is to preach that. Well, you preach it with your lifestyle a lot faster than with your words. And guess what? If you walk in strife and grumble and gripe and talk about people, you know the world looks at you and say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with Christians. I won't do anything with a hypocrite. And so you, they, they catch it before they hear it. And so they watch you. And so let's look at what's needed to have unity. There's characteristics of unity found in the next verse. You're like, well, Rick, you spent all that time in first verse. I'm, we're in trouble. And so I could tell the first, the, the church service and the first service, like, oh, we're in big trouble. 
but we'll never get there. And so, you know what? I, I found the first three. We're going to spend most of our time in the first three verses, and the last three are going to go pretty quick. So hold on. There's hope. Look at verse 2. Paul says, here's characteristics that need to be in you for you to walk in unity with people around you. There's certain things that need to be in you first. First of all, it says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love. These are what's necessary for you to be in unity because Paul's going to talk in this chapter about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being built together and talks about church government and talking about we're a, we're a living, a breathing uh, entity that's doing the work in the, we're the body of Christ. But let me tell you what's needed. Each individual Christian is a building block in it. Every living Christian is a cell in that body. And so what's necessary to have a healthy body? Well, your body to be healthy, your, your body needs to walk in unity. Every organ needs to be in unity with the other organs. Do you know what disease is? It's when organs fight other organs. Do you know what cancer is? When cells fight cells. That's cancer. And so to walk in unity, we got to have these, three, these things right here. First of all, you need all lowliness. What's lowliness? Humility. Humility. Tell someone you may need more humility. Humility is needed first before you can be gentle, before you can be patient, long-suffering, and for, before forbearing other people, there needs to be humility. He puts that first. Humility is needed. A proud person is not a gentle person. A proud person is not a patient person. And a proud person isn't forbearing with other people. And so humility is first. And so humility is a must to keep unity with others. Pride always causes contention. Only by pride comes strife and contentions. So how do you have humility? Let me tell you the worst way to try to get it is try to be humble. The more you try to be humble, the more proud you get because you focus on you. The more you focus on you, the more proud you get. So how do you get humble? Get your eyes off you. Get your eyes off. Stop being a navel gazer. It's a dark place anyway. Be a sun gazer. Get your eyes on Jesus. Only when you get your eyes on Jesus can you truly be humble. Humble. And so getting your eyes off yourself, getting them onto Jesus, is the key to humility. Again, the harder you try to be humble, the prouder you get. Humility is like a coin that has two sides to it. And to be truly humble, you need to be able to operate on both sides of the coin of humility. Let's look at the first side of the coin. The first side of the coin, if you're in humility, you can say, I don't know. You ever met a person that could not say, I don't know? You ask them a question and they're halfway through the answer and you know and they know, they don't know what they're talking about. It's called news. But we got to have an answer. I'm getting paid for comment and for ideas. And you, so humility can say, I don't, say, this will help you. Say, I don't know. Doesn't that feel good? Your flesh goes, oh, I hate that. Another thing that humility can say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. This may help you. Say, say, I was wrong. You ever met someone that could not say that? 
Just refuse to say that. You don't know anybody like that. There's no one like that here. I, humility can say, I was wrong. Here's another thing humility can say. I am sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for what I did. That's one side of the humility. Some people say, oh, I got that down, I got that down. But you struggle with the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin, you can equally say in humility, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Humility can say, I am holy in Christ Jesus. So I want you to say that. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am holy in Christ Jesus. I am as loved as much as Jesus is by the Father. Equally humble. You can say that. Why? Let me just give you a wormhole to humility. You want to get right there, get your eyes on Jesus, but then agree with God. You want to be humble? Agree with God. If he says you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, what does the humble say? I must be the righteousness of God in Christ because he said so. What's a prideful person say? Oh, I'm a worm, a worm, a worm, a worm. I'm an old sinner saved by grace because I'm humble. No, you're proud. You're exalting your feelings and what you think above God. You want humility? Agree with God. So with all humility and gentleness, do you know gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit? Where does fruit come from? Yeah, tree, but where do, where do roots planted in your spirit? Let me tell you some gentleness. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is gentle? You know, Jesus was humble. And so, so you need to realize that in your new birth that you have the same character Jesus has. As he is, so are we in this world. How's that in the new birth? God is humble. Look in Zechariah. Look in Zechariah 9.9. Our Lord is humble. Zechariah is right before the Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's Jesus. He is just, righteous, and having salvation, lowly, humble. Jesus is humble, and he has the same nature as the Father. The Father is humble. When Jesus came, he didn't come on a flaming rocket ship, <laughs> displaying who he was in great grandeur. He actually told people when he healed them, he said, shh, don't tell anybody. How many people we have, we see a miracle raise someone from the dead, say, shh, don't tell anybody. We have to have someone know what we did. And so our Lord is humble, but that nature of Jesus is in your spirit. That means you're humble. It's in your spirit, but it's really down deep. You have to pull it up by faith, work it in from the outside out to the inside, outside to the inside to the outside. All lowliness, and it says with gentleness. God is gentle. Do you know that? He's gentle. He's not harsh. And that's a fruit of the Spirit. It's on the inside of you. Next of all, with long-suffering. Pastor, what's long-suffering? It's in the Word. It means suffer long. And this Word is always connected to people. Because some people, you have to be long-suffering. 
with some people. But first of all, that's the nature of God. God is long-suffering with you. Well, how long-suffering, Pastor? Well, to understand how long, we need to understand Jesus is quickly. God's quickly. What's, how quick is quickly? In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I come. How many years ago was that? 2,000 years ago. If that's as quickly, how long is this long? You can't live long enough to outlive the long-suffering of God towards you. And long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians. This is bearing the fruit from the grace put within you. Draw it out by faith. Finally, bearing with one another in love. Look at the word bearing with. It means to put up with. Literally, to put up with. Some people, have you ever learned you have to put up with some people? Some people are sweet and lovely and you love to be around them, but some people you need to put up with. Well, pastor, I try to put up with them and all I want to do is slap them. But keep reading. Bearing, it doesn't just say bearing with one another. It says bearing with one another in love. Agape. Let me tell you something. Are you having trouble loving that person? That's, that's uh, hard to put up with. Now, don't look if you're married. I don't need marriage counseling right now. There's some people you're having difficulty, you're having trouble putting up with them. Why? Because you're trying to do it in your own strength. You're trying to do it in the energy of your flesh. But no, it says in love. Let me tell you how to do it. Receive love. Some people, if you're having trouble loving, it's because you're not allowing God to love you. Because it's the resource that you operate from. And so the more you receive the love of God, it's the actual fuel for you to love someone with. And it'll be by the power of God in doing it. And so do it in love. Notice it just says basically, God's never going to ask you something you don't have grace for. This verse says, to do this, you have grace for it. So I want you to say something. Say this. I have grace for this. I have grace for this. Say, I have grace for this. I have grace to be gentle and whole and humble and long suffering. You don't have to repeat all this. Long suffering. I have grace for this. Say, I have grace for this. I have grace for this. Amen. You have grace for that at Walmart. Let's get practical. You're at Walmart. And, you know, like, like any other person, you're looking for the lane that's going to be your best option to get out quick. So you find one with a couple of people in it. The rest have long lines. So you head towards it, and you ignore the old lady struggling to get there before you. You don't see her. And you hop right into the lane, and sure enough, you pick the lane with the coupon lady. And they're all out of date. Or you, the, it's, there's a cashier change, right, when the time you get up there, or the paper runs out. And everybody in the line is heaving and rolling their eyes. <gasps> And looking at you to get you involved in it, what do you do? Do you roll your eyes and heave and with the rest of them? But you have peace, you have joy. So, oh, do you want to go in front of me? Oh, you want to go in front of me? He's like, well, you don't seem to be getting anywhere. That's fine. I'm getting further than you think I am. And you're bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience. And People can only see the Jesus in you by manifesting him outwardly. Verse 3 says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at the word endeavoring. 
It means earnest endeavor, giving diligence to something. It means to work at it. Any relationship takes work. It takes work to keep in unity. A marriage, uh, a work environment, uh, a church environment, it takes work. If there's unity there, work has to involve it. Earnest endeavor needs to take place there. And so look at the word endeavoring. It means to give diligence, but it also means this, to make haste, to do something quickly. What is this verse saying? That oftentimes when unity is broken, we're slow to fix it. Be quick to fix it. And so get immediately when you see unity broken, you take the first step. Who's the first person that should take a step in restoring unity? The more mature person. That's why Joanne always, <laughs> always fixes it. And I say, well, thank you, sweetheart. And so oftentimes there's a fracture in a relationship and it's left over time. And that fracture all of a sudden gets wider and wider into a chasm. It's very difficult to bridge. Don't allow that to happen. If it has happened, God can still bring it together. But you need to take the first step. Take the first step. And so we'll talk a little bit more of that here in a second, how you do that. So endeavoring to keep. didn't say to create because it says keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so, again, this unity has been established between believers by the Holy Spirit through the new birth. He brought you two together, but now you need to keep it. Keep it. He established it. You must keep it. And we'll show you how to keep it here in a second. However, most Christians, well, basically, how do you keep it? You need to keep focused on who you are in the Spirit. When you focus on who you are in the Spirit and treat other Christians according to who they are in the Spirit, then that brings unity. But you have to walk in the Spirit. You have to be spiritual to do that. But most Christians are not spiritual. They are soulish or carnal. They're operating their emotions or they're walking in their flesh. And your flesh has all kinds of differences with other people around you. And your flesh will always focus on your differences. Always. And there's divisions all over the world because of the flesh. But in the spirit, we're in the flesh we're all different, but in the spirit we're all the same. Jesus, 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 Jesus. We must be diligent in the word of God meditating on who we are in the spirit. And we must be diligent to pray in the spirit to remain in unity. The early church was diligent daily to be in the word and they were diligent in prayer, especially praying in the spirit. Do you notice that on the on the tower of Babel they were all in unity until God divided them? What brought division to them? Divers tongues, divers tongues, languages brought division at the Tower of Babel, but God reversed it on the day of Pentecost. He brought divers tongues of the Spirit, which brought unity, unity to the body of Christ. Many nations coming together in one church, one body in unity. And so let me bring out, if you're having difficulty walking in unity with someone, pray in the Holy Ghost, pray in the Holy Ghost. As a couple... You're struggling in your marriage to understand one another. Pray in tongues together. Pray in the Spirit together. The Holy Spirit will help you bring unity. Well, I don't want to pray with my spouse. 
That's the number one thing in marriage counseling that we start with. Every single marriage counseling that we've ever had, they stop praying with one another. God, you know marriage is not a, a covenant of two. Oh, no, pastor's got the effect infection. No, no. The covenant, marriage covenant is a covenant of three. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Who's the first cord in that marriage? God. He's the one that brings you two together. You guys, men and women are so different that if God didn't put hormones in you, you never would come together. <laughs> and it takes the power of God to keep you together when you are together. Because, uh, you know, when two are opposites, there's a, a, you know, you want to split. The power of God. People are like, scientists do not know what's holding atoms together. They're clueless. You have negative charged particles next to, to positive connected right there. And by every law, they should be repelling each other and splitting constantly. And they don't know what's holding it together. The power of God. The power of God is holding the atoms together. What's going to hold your marriage together? When you have two direct polar opposites, what's going to, the power of God. Start praying with each other. Not manipulative prayers. Oh, Lord, teach them, help them, stop doing it. No, you bless them. And ask God to humble yourself. Show me how, I'm, how I can be a better spouse. Unity. I'm going to give you some practical Steps to unity. You might want to take these notes. Practical steps to unity. First of all, it starts with prayer. We talked about that prayer. Has it come to that? No, it starts with that. Unity. Engage in prayer together. A church that prays together stays together. A family that prays together stays together. A married couple who prays together stays together. And so next, practice humility. Practice humility. Recognize that everyone has different perspectives, experiences, and opinions. Approach disagreements with an open mind and a willingness to listen and learn. Learn. Listen to learn, not listen to speak. Listen to learn. Next of all, that leads into the third one. Effective communication must be there for unity. Good communication is essential for preserving unity there needs open and honest dialogue. Ensure that everyone has a chance to express their thoughts. Husband, yeah, you do a lot of talking, but are you listening? Parents, yeah, you're good at telling the kids what to do all the time, but have you tried to listen what they're saying? Why are they acting the way they're acting? Find out. Once you ask them questions about their day instead of giving them lectures all the time, and you may have some more unity in your family. Effective communication. Next of all, forgiveness. Forgiveness is crucial to maintaining peace and unity. People will make mistakes. Welcome to life. You make mistakes. They make mistakes. Conflicts will arise because of mistakes. But be willing to forgive and move forward. Why? Because you're forgiven. God forgave you of everything you've done. Why withhold that gift for someone else? Well, they deserve it. Well, so did you. <laughs> Jesus died equally for them and you on the cross and paid the price. Amen. Forgive. Next of all, I think this is important, shared practices in your family, in a church, in a work situation. What brings unity? Shared practices. 
In a church, church, our church service brings unity. Our communion brings unity. Our worship brings unity. Our shared meals that we have, once it brings unity. Well, what about a home life? Do you think that can work in a home? Yes. There's been years back when I remember families ate together. They shared meals together. Now you have a kid over here and a kid over here and mom's over here and dad's over here and you don't even share a common meal together. Let's start having meals together. How about devotions together? Having a shared practice together brings unity. Next of all, serve others. Don't wait to be served. Serve others. When members work together to serve a common cause or to help those in need, it can strengthen unity. And lastly, we're going to spend some time on this to end the message. Seek common ground. Seek the most common denominators you can agree on. The essentials that you can agree on. Oftentimes, we're disagreeing over non-essentials. Just non-essentials. In a church, so much of the church has been in division over non-essentials over forms of baptism and on eschatology and all these things were non-essentials. But if you'll focus on the essentials, that can bring the unity. And we'll talk about, Paul brings out what are the essentials that bring unity, and we'll look at that. I have an example. If you have 100 pianos, all tuned by the same tuning fork, they'll be automatically tuned to each other. Let me say that again. If you had a hundred pianos all tuned by the same tuning fork, automatically they're all tuned to each other. They are on one accord because they were tuned not to each other, but to the, the one standard by which each one must individually bow. When we're in tune with Christ, we're in unity with everyone else tuned with Christ. Keep the unity of the, of the Spirit the, in the bond of peace. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is of the Spirit. It's on the inside. Uniformity is on the outside, and it's coerced and forced on the outside. You have to be identical to me. And everything you say, everything you believe, you must be identical to me. That is not unity, guys. Unity is a work of the Spirit on the inside. Unity is not based on agreement on all points, but on the main points. Let me say that again. Unity is not based on agreement on all points, but on the main points, the essentials. St. Augustine said this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. And we need that in our home. We can need that in our workplace. We can need it in the church if there's disunity. So Paul now, we're going to end this chapter, and we're going to go pretty quickly from here on. Paul will now list seven essentials that bring unity as Christians. Seven essentials that we need to focus on that will bring unity. If we tune ourselves to these essentials, we'll be tuned to each other. So look at verse 4. What's the, what's the essential number one? There is one body. How many bodies? There are not two bodies of Christ, 15 bodies of Christ. You know there's a lot of denominations. There are thousands of denominations, but there's only one body of Christ. We created the divisions. God did not. He doesn't have a section in heaven for Methodists, Baptists, Pentecostals. Woo, woo. He doesn't, 
we're all one body, one body, one body. If you're born again, you're a part of one body. And it's sad if your organs were in fight with one another. It's called disease. No, we're one body. So I can fellowship with a Methodist or a Lutheran or any of them. Are you born again? Are you part of the body? Yes, I can fellowship with you. I'm not going to argue with you over tongues and healing and stuff like that. Yeah, if you're open, I will share, but I can fellowship around Jesus. One body with one spirit. Not two spirits, not multiple spirits, one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. If you're born again, you have one Holy Spirit. And I don't care what, who you are, if you're born again all around the world, I don't care what denomination you're in, if you're born again, you have the same spirit I have. We all have the same Holy Spirit. That brings unity. Next of all, just as you were called in one hope, say one hope, of your calling. We don't have multiple hopes. Every Christian, if you have your eyes right, you have one hope, the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all going to one place for the same length of time, serving the same Lord, we have unity. One hope of your calling. Verse 5. One Lord. Who's the one Lord? Jesus. Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord, well, he's my Lord. Well, well, so is he. I can get with you. I can have fellowship with you. I'm not going to argue with you over finer points of doctrine. I can get with you on the fact that Jesus is Lord. Now, if you believe Buddha is Lord, I can't fellowship with you. One Lord, one faith. Say one faith. That's one faith. What? Faith in the Lord Jesus. There's only one faith. That, but, but today there are many faiths, many religions called the many faiths. And I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to suck the air out of the room. I'll put it back. All faiths lead to God. In judgment. All ways lead to God to stand before the judgment seat, but only one way brings salvation. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's Buddha's not the way, Muhammad's not the way, Confucius is not the way. You'll get confused. <laughs> one faith. If you have that faith, then I can fellowship with you. One baptism. Yeah, water baptism. No. You, what, you know what divides the body of Christ more than about anything is water baptism. This is not talking about water baptism. It's talking about the one baptism of the Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ when you were saved. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 13. This is the one baptism that we all share it was by the, done by the Spirit of God. Can you pop up 1 Corinthians 12, 13? First Corinthians 12. It's after verse 11. It's after 11. I can quote. There we go. By one Spirit, say one. one. We were all, say all. all. Baptized into one, say one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we all, they all been made to drink into one spirit. That happened at the new birth. It's not water baptism, because if it was water baptism, it's all over the board. There's a, well, you got to dunk them? No, they're sprinkling. No, you have to have running water. 
there's actually a church that Barry Bennett said he was, he was traveling somewhere, and he actually saw the sign. This church was named this. It says, Baptized in Running Water, Face First Baptist Church. <laughs> and they got, you got to have it that way, or I can't have fellowship with you. No, it's not water baptism that brings us together. It's the one baptism of salvation, one baptism that brings in unity. And then finally, verse 6 says there's one God. Say, one God. And one Father of us all. There's not multi-fathers, three, four, eight fathers. No, there's one Father, God the Father. And if he's your Father, he's my Father. And we're in the same family. Raise your hand if you have kids, multiple kids. Well, they, does it bless you when they come to the table and start running down each other? Running down their sister, running down their brother, talking down about them. Does that bless you as a parent? No, it doesn't bless God when we run down another believer. Because we have the same Father. Same Father. Who is above all, through all, and in you all. Let's stand to our feet. Father, I thank you so much for the word of God that you brought unity and you created it through the new birth. And Lord, you put your nature within us, your humility, your gentleness, your long-suffering, and your ability to, to bear one another in love. Thank you, Lord, as we receive of your nature on the inside, we can bear the fruit of these that brings unity. There's some listening to me today, there's strife in your home. There's strife at work. There's strife with you and another believer. And today you realize God created the unity, but you must endeavor. You must have a part to play in that unity. You need to make that first step. And the Lord will give you that wisdom to make that step. It may be to apologize, to be able to say in humility, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But you still can be able to say, I'm still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I can say I'm wrong in the natural and still say I'm perfect in the spirit. And so, Father, I thank you for those that there's strife going on right now in their home. This ends today in Jesus' name. They're going to take some of the practical things we talked about and put it into practice. And, Lord, I thank you. The enemy is defeated. Strife is defeated. No longer will it reign in your home, in your marriage, anymore in Jesus' name. So, Father, I thank you for the powerful unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in every area of our lives. And Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship God. Amen. That was such an awesome message on unity. And I couldn't help but think worship is such an awesome place to come and lift our voices together as a church, as a body and give our God praise. And so as we jump into this time of worship, I just encourage you to focus on nothing but the Lord, on what he's done for you in your life. And let's all just worship him in our hearts, in spirit, in truth. By love. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and all who come to me have rest for their souls. Every brick is needed because every brick together makes that wall. This message is 
obviously for me, but for other people here as well. We're meant to be together as one, unified as one. We're not supposed to be a where's wall to where are the Christians. We're supposed to be showing his love and being unified together. We win where we focus on him. Amen. What an awesome word. And if you have a word for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Grace has created a bond, but I see in the spirit how the enemy has come. You can turn the lights back up. The enemy's come to create a knot of strife and division and fear and bondage. And I see the Lord untying the knot of the enemy. And as you lift him up in worship and in faith, what the enemy is meant to tie you up and tie your family and tie your work environment and whatever he's doing to you, the Lord's undoing it by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen. Well, if you didn't hear what the Lord was saying today, you weren't paying attention. Amen. The unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Thank you, Lord. You may be seated. As we turn the house lights up, we're going to continue to worship the Lord with our tithes and offerings. And so as you pass that out and fill that out, we have a few more minutes of worship, and then I'll be back up to pray for the offering. We stand in your presence holding the tokens of the grace of God in our lives. The finances that you blessed us with gave us strength and intelligence and opportunity and the ability to work. It came from you. And Lord, we're going to take this and we're going to sow it back into the kingdom of God by faith, knowing that you're going to touch it. It's going to expand the kingdom of God. But we know something else. You're our source. And Lord, I thank you that you cause it to come back to us in a greater stream of grace, pressed down, shaking together, running over. A harvest comes back to us. We thank you, Father, for fresh grace in our lives. We give you glory in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. amen. Let's release the rose from the back to the front. If you have an offering, we bring as an act of worship. In the Old Testament, Gospel, New Testament, they brought their offering as worship. Let's do that. Worship the Lord and then... Uh, take your community elements and we'll protect you. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> you may have been sleeping under a rock, maybe, or just super busy, but do you know that Israel was very much attacked? There's 500 people dead, 1,500 injured, and numerous people have been taken captive by Hamas. And the war is on. Netanyahu has declared war on Hamas, rightly so. And so things, have things are changing. We've seen things changing as we've gone along these last couple years. There's been so many new things happening. But the one thing we do know is that we need to be loyal to Israel. <clears throat> and... And with that, we pledge to be. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saved us, and the reason why we're here today, and the reason why